0: Welcome to the Native Advertising Powerhouse, a podcast
1: dedicated to help publishers and native ad studio professionals build a solid framework for their native advertising efforts. The host of the show is Jesper Lawson, founder of the Native Advertising Institute. My name is Jesper Lawson and you're listening to the 11th episode of the Native Advertising Powerhouse. This will be the last episode of this season before we return in February 2019. Today I have Adrian Michaels, director of First Word Media, joining me on the show. We're going to be talking about what branded content teams can learn from the newsroom. And remember, if you like what you hear, please drop us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Welcome on the show, Adrian.
0: Thank you very much, Esper. It's a real privilege to be here.
1: Let's start by talking about you. Could you tell us about First Word Media, what the the company is and, and what your role in the company is?
0: Sure. I started First Word Media with my main business partner called Ross Cathcart, who came from a public relations background, and I'm a journalist. We started the company about five years ago now. And the genesis of the company was the thought that I had that marketing is evolving towards content marketing and advertisers are understanding that some of the traditional ways that they used to get in touch with audiences are not having the effect that they used to mm-hmm. display advertising least to banner blindness and there are ad blockers everywhere we see uh, a lack of effectiveness often now for traditional media outreach and public relations simply because there are fewer journalists who have less time to write for you write what you would like them to write and people are not reading a lot of newspapers anymore anyway and in the meantime the digital revolution has opened up a whole new way of getting in touch with audiences but it's about the production of very good material that people want to read or watch and share and my view was that uh the best people who are best placed to make engaging content are journalists which was something that i would spent 20 years getting good at and uh i knew a lot of people who were really good at doing that too and we thought we would start an agency up and offer our services to our clients. I'll give you a tiny bit of background about mm-hmm. me. Sure. Uh, I was at the Financial Times for 15 years as a desk editor, as a sub-editor, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was a foreign correspondent. I was extremely lucky and privileged to do that. I had—I uh, always joked that I had two of the roughest gigs on earth. I was in New York for five years and then Milan for four years.
1: Oh, poor thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, <it> sounds <laughs> terrible.
0: It, right? it was really awful. Yeah. <laughs> uh and then i moved back to london for the telegraph newspaper and i was the foreign editor of the telegraph i ran the uh the foreign operations for both the daily and the sunday telegraph on, for, and for the telegraph website and we put them all together in as one operation at that time um but as re- relevant to uh, this conversation as anything else is my last job at the telegraph because i moved to the advertising department and at that point i don't think anybody's senior editorial in what was known old-fashioned term as fleet street which is the term for the big old-fashioned British newspapers, even though there are no newspapers on Fleet Street anymore in London, they're still called Fleet Street, the main national papers. Mm. And I don't think anybody had, on the editorial department who had been on those papers had moved to the advertising department until I did. And now uh, pretty much every newspaper has senior editorial people in their advertising department. And the reason for that is because of the growth in demand for content from advertisers so there are fantastically creative marketing and sales people in those advertising teams Uh, but when it comes to the execution of content and the production skills that are required and the commissioning skills that are required and the editing skills that are required unsurprisingly those guys uh, don't really have those skills so i ran a 40 person self-contained newsroom on the telegraph's advertising department
2: wow uh
0: And uh, The Telegraph was way ahead of the game. It it wasn't really called native advertising then. I'm not sure. I don't think it had a name. But obviously, we would all understand it as a rebirth of advertorial. Mm. And advertorial had a pretty dirty name but it became reborn as something much more creative and much more engaging and actually something that people really wanted to read. And the Telegraph started to have dedicated sales teams for native advertising uh, probably, gosh, 2007, 2008, 10 years ago, I would say.
1: Wow, I mean, 40 people in a, in a team like that 8 or 10 years ago, that's pretty amazing.
0: Yes, and what well, I was going to say, don't forget, that, that doesn't include the salespeople who are dedicated to selling those materials. And it doesn't include the writers, because we outsourced the writing to the experts in the particular field that we were covering. So these were desk editors, commissioning editors, sub-editors, picture desk people, designers, web people, and SEO people, and all those sorts of people. And not the writers or the salespeople. And there were still 40 people.
1: That's probably one of the biggest operations that I've heard of, even today. I mean, few people have, if you exclude writers and all the other stuff, Mm. that you'd have four people on the team. How, how, did that, how did that happen? Was it a strategic decision at some point, or did it just kind of grow into that?
0: It grew organically. In fact, I think, I mean, I left five years ago now, and I suspect it's even bigger, actually, now. Mm. Uh, the reason why it grew, it just grew organically as the business came on board. They started selling content solutions to advertising clients. Uh, as a way of engaging the Telegraph's audience in what the advertisers wanted to say through journalism and great design. And they also offered bespoke web pages and hubs on the Telegraph's website and Mm -hmm. things like that. And the problem was, I'm sure that the people there wouldn't mind me saying this, at that time they were selling the solutions extremely successfully with really great ideas, but they were not getting a hell of a lot of repeat business because they were mucking up the production process but the salespeople didn't know how to execute properly. Mm. Uh, it wasn't really their job and there was no reason why they should know how to do it, right? So they were going to sort of a few ad hoc journalists who they had roped in to help them, but they didn't really have a great production process in place to make sure that all of their clients were being served properly. And don't forget that you know, this isn't just producing journalism for people, there, ha- there is normally, when it's a native advertising studio, there is normally an advertising agency involved as well as the client, a media buying agency. Mm. So you have a media buying agency and the client and various editorial people and the ad sales people and you need project managers to drive that process. So basically my job there, I mean, I basically did three things. One was to make sure that the editorial departments and the advertising departments weren't killing each other over what was allowed and what wasn't allowed as regards allowing advertisers to produce journalism. Mm. And obviously, there are, there are very deep issues there about integrity and what you allow and what you don't allow. I basically put in a set of rules in place to work out what sort of engagement was allowed by the editorial department and what the advertising department was allowed to offer their advertisers. That was an easy job to do, but nobody had done it when I arrived. So that was one thing. I mean, they'd had discussions, but they kept arguing with each other, of course. I mean, my view was that if both departments hated me, then I was probably doing a good job. (laughs) And that was kind of how it worked out. And then the second job was just this incredible production process. There was a very big management job required. It was an incredible, it is an incredibly complicated production system. If you think about advertisers, some of them are advertising in the magazine and the magazine will go to press uh, three weeks ahead of the newspaper. Some of them are advertising journalism or using journalism to get a piece of native advertising content in the paper that's going to press tomorrow morning. Some of them are building web hubs that are going to take two months to design and build. And so the production cycles of all of these different types of content, we were working with probably 80 or so clients at any one time, uh, was amazingly complicated. But it just needed a clear head. And we ran the entire operation off one shared Google spreadsheet. Yeah, which we just made sure everybody looked at every morning. It wasn't that hard in the end. But, it, you know, I make it sound a little easy, but of course it isn't really. Oh. Um, but <laughs> the last thing I did, uh, which the thing I'd never done before, which I which I found was the most fun, which is why I'm now doing what I'm doing now, which was I was helping the salespeople to sell. Okay. You know, they, they were coming up with content solutions, partly with our help on the sort of the journalism side of the advertising room Mm -hmm. and partly on their own. But we were going out there to help them sell those solutions. And if you've still the case today, I believe that with content marketing and native advertising, if you show up in the room with a real journalist, the advertisers tend to be quite impressed because uh, the journalists are coming in with storytelling skills and a way of looking at how to sell stories uh, to audiences that isn't really common in public relations firms or advertising agencies or marketing departments. You know, just a different set of skills that we took a lot of time getting good at. Um, and advertisers tend to be quite nervous about doing storytelling because they don't they're not sure that they're particularly good at it, but they mm. think they need it. And I think they're right that they do need it. So if you just come in, you can you can lower the temperature of the room very quickly when you start to talk about how, how you see things working and they start to get reassured. If you're calm <laughs> and you can tell the story to them
1: is that is that something you recommend always have um, journalists in the room
0: uh yes provided that <laughs> I, the reason i hesi- i would say yes of course but the reason i hesitated is because there are a lot of journalists that aren't very commercially minded right and one of the reasons why some journalists are very good at what they do and in fact you and i spoke about this in berlin didn't we right. was that not all journalists are very commercially friendly and you might not recommend putting them in front of people that you're trying to get them to spend money with you, <laughs> but I'm uh, slightly joking about it, but, but if you go in with the right agenda, having good storytellers with you who are well behaved and know how to, and know how to talk about what they're good at in ways particularly in ways that advertisers understand, then that clearly would be a, a very good asset to have in the room right. I mean, I got good at it because I, was, I spent a long time with advertisers listening to what they want and translating those marketing goals into editorial themes and watching the reaction on their faces to see if they were interested in what we were selling. Mm. Anyway, I should say, after I did all of that, that's, all that led to the birth of First Word. And First Word now goes out and sells all of these content solutions directly to clients. We still work for native advertising departments of media owners
1: As a subcontractor or?
0: Yes, as a subcontractor. And we still, probably between 10 and 20% of our business comes from that. We still work with the Financial Times occasionally. We work with Dow Jones, you know, the Wall Street Journal publisher. Mm -hmm. And we work with some others as well, some TV studios too. We can help them to sell ideas So if the advertising team is trying to pitch for business, they might need editorial ideas as part of that pitch. The request comes in, we want to make a campaign around a particular project that we're working on or a particular idea. Is it it sustainability? Is it about a new business travel offering? Is it about our presence in Asia? Whatever it might be. Mm. And that's fine, but they might need a lot of very good feature ideas very fast. Mm. So we'll we'll convene a brainstorm of some great journalists, and we'll get a lot of feature ideas together very quickly to help them sell. That's one thing that we do, uh, and then of course, hopefully, if they do sell, then we hope that we'll get the business of executing that work afterwards.
1: Right. So, so you're, I mean, we've had a lot of studios on the podcast uh, from various publishers. We've had uh, brands who've got, who run their own native advertising operations like SAP. Your company kind of represents a third option, which is uh, using a content agency. Or, But how do you see this whole ecosystem evolving?
0: Yeah, it, look, I mean, so if I say that 20% of our work is still native, sort of uh, white label, if you like, for media owners, Mm -hmm. That means that the rest of our business is direct for clients. So I would say it's a mix. If you say that the brand studios for SAP and so on are doing their own thing, uh, they might be. But in most cases, they'll be outsourcing quite a bit of that work to agencies like mine anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just may not hear about it. And so some companies do have the capabilities to do it all in-house. But my experience is that many of them uh, either have too much content to do and they need to outsource some of it anyway, or they recognize that hiring a 40-person newsroom within their marketing department is an enormous undertaking. Mm. That's gonna need a lot of management and it might be easier just to ask some experts to do it anyway. I do think on the content marketing side, I do think there are a lot of people who are offering content services as agencies. Now, you'll hear public relations firms talk about content all the time and advertising agencies, but I do think that uh, content has become a big word that they think they need to use, but actually, the newsroom mentality and rigor and skills required are rarer than you would think. So I see the ecosystem working as outsourcing skills that you don't have to people who are really good at it. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to find experts to help you rather than try to replicate it yourself. We tend to work with the marketing departments of our clients, and in rare cases, the marketing departments do have journalists in them, Mm -hmm. and I think that's becoming less rare There's no doubt in my mind that you're seeing journalists joining marketing departments of companies now, but even one or two lone journalists is not enough to solve your content problems. Mm. I did say a lot of this at at your terrific conference in Berlin, that I hope that people who listen to me took away the message, which is just getting a journalist to write stuff for you is a tiny fraction of of what you need to make really great content. Mm. So just doing good work, writing good stuff or making good videos is is only really a fraction of what's required. Because if you think about getting together a list of what it is that you're doing in the first place, which I call that newsroom mentality. And the mentality is we need to produce stuff that our audiences want to read or watch. And that isn't half the time. That is not what I want to tell them. It's what they want to hear from me. And the crucial difference between marketing and content marketing in that context is that marketing is what I want to tell you today. Content marketing is, what do you want to hear from me today? Mm. And that's what a newspaper does brilliantly every day. And the, the analogy I always use is if you imagine if you're the features editor of a newspaper and you have eight features to produce for tomorrow's paper, mm-hmm. the feature writers have offered you stories. And there is probably no chance that your eight features will have more than a couple of those from the list of feature writer offerings. Mm. And the other six stories will be, what did our competitors write about yesterday, Who did the editor have dinner with last night and something interesting came up? Uh, What's going on in the world? What are our readers writing to us about and they're interested in? What are people clicking in online? Mm. And that is what makes the feature list interesting for the readers tomorrow. And the same goes for a content campaign for a company. That once you've established what people want to read or watch, then you can introduce your marketing messages and the other interesting things. But it has to be that way around and and not... Product-led or marketing idea-led first. Does, does that make sense?
1: It does. Um, I remember b- talking about Berlin. You said that that native advertising is not advertising; it's it's journalism. Right. Uh, so I, I guess that ties into some of what you're saying now. But could you elaborate a little on on this phrase?
0: Yeah. Well, and so, if you unpick that, if you unpick the word journalism, that's what I'm saying. So journalism isn't. So, with the outside world, journalism means reporting and writing. Mm. But to me, journalism means reporting and writing and Newsroom mentality, which is, what do we write about? What do our audiences want to read? Because I've got to sell it to you. Mm. There's no point in just writing stuff that nobody wants to read, right? There's no point in making videos that nobody wants to watch. So it's not just perfect execution of an idea. It has to be perfect execution of an idea that you know will fly. So that's journalism. And crucially, the third part, which is it's not just execution of the stuff and not just newsroom mentality, but the third part is newsroom rigor, And the rigor is the team of journalists that are required to make content as good as it can be. And that's also something that doesn't exist in native advertising departments very often or in marketing departments. And by rigor, I mean journalists need to be commissioned by journalists. Journalists need to be edited by journalists. Journalists need to be sub-edited by journalists. You have to put the headlines on. You have to put the sub-headlines on. You have to check all the facts. You have to write the tweets that go with it. You have to do the SEO, you have to publish the stuff online in a beautiful way. Mm. You have to do great design. That's all journalism. So journalism is not just I wrote something. Journalism is the newsroom mentality and rigor as well. And and going back to Berlin, uh, but a nice image for everybody to think of because it's easy for people outside journalism to remember this. If you think about the list of credits at the end of a movie, there are hundreds of jobs on that list, and it's not just the actors in the movie or the director's name. There are gaffers and grips and costume designers and continuity people and lighting people and sound people and engineers. And there are hundreds of jobs. You have no idea what they do, mm. yes nor do I. But you assume that if they weren't working on that movie, the movie would not be very good. Yeah. And the same goes for newspapers and the same goes for content and the same goes for video studios.
1: But I'd actually argue that, you know, that native advertising or, or brand journalism, whatever you want to call it, is, has the opportunity to, be, to have even more rigor than journalism, just for the fact that there are more money in native advertising, usually, where, you know, most newsrooms throughout the world have been experiencing cut downs for, you know, years and years now. And then on the other hand, you'll have, you know, big brands. For example, as I said before, we had SAP in the room. So obviously SAP is working with quite different budgets than, than, than most newspapers. So you, you potentially, if you put your mind to it, you would have the budget to, to have this rigor even more extensively than, than publishers.
0: I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the attractions for me when I moved to the advertising side of the Telegraph in London, and again, why I stayed in what I was doing, because I was enjoying it so much and hence founded the agency that we're talking about today as well is because of the budget. There is a massive and growing demand for journalism outside their branded content is growing hugely, as you know very Mm. well. And so that's a very interesting thought for journalists that sit in newsrooms because it feels like the exact opposite, that they are are being subject to huge budget cuts, uh, a business model that is really, really challenging right now and every now and again, there are redundancies and job, and job cuts and everything else. Right. But on the branded side, it, there's growth, tremendous growth, and that coming, that's coming from the barn because advertisers are understanding quickly that it's a beautiful way to talk to your audiences on a regular basis with things that they want to uh, read and share and enjoy. And therefore, there is budget. That means, normally, better writers, better photography, better design, great web pages, And some of the most exciting projects in journalism today are undoubtedly being driven by brands. You can see examples from that all over the place.
1: Yeah. Even though you feel that that native advertising is is journalism to some extent, you also uh, made a point at Native Advertising Days in Berlin in November that that native advertising and journalism differs in different ways. You you came up with six ways. Um, Could you share some of those?
0: Yes, absolutely. I want to say that I've I've really felt duty bound to say that because if you just talk to advertising and marketing people about best practice in journalism, uh, although that's very useful to them, I suspect that a lot of them would sit there and think, well, that's great. But, you know, I have all of these other people to satisfy. We can't really go out and do 100 percent editorial integrity, amazing investigative reporting and expect advertisers to pay, pay for it when it's going to be off message. And they've got bosses that are paying for these advertising campaigns and, uh, and they're not going to like what we've gone we've gone and done. And in fact, I remember you asked me about that, didn't you? Yeah. About can you actually do investigative reporting and things that people also, again, assume is that's one of the things that people think about when they're thinking about journalism more than anything else. And so we did a lot of thinking this year, actually, about what the differences are. Because we, we tend to tell our clients, truthfully, I think that we do our very best to make sure that what we produce for them is fit to print in the Financial Times tomorrow morning. And in other words, that's what we put in all this tremendous amount of skill and work and extra reporting and all the checking and the rigor that we just talked about. But the truth is, of course, as everybody knows, that it's still paid for by an advertiser. And so there are crucial differences. And so we did sort of try and tease those out. And they're important to recognize so that you can build them into your production process and make sure that you're putting the newsroom, newsroom best skills and practice together with what is different in native advertising. So the first thing to point out is that native advertising and branded content tends to be constructive. And I think that's a really important point, because I also think it's something that newspapers are missing out on. Newspapers, as we all know, tend to sell bad news. Bad news sells better, more newspapers than good news. And I think journalists tend to get wrapped up in that they're always looking for things that are going wrong mm. as a way to sell newspapers the same goes for I'm talk, when i say newspapers i'm using shorthand for all media outlets the same goes for broadcast as well as tv and radio but branded advertisers apart from the fact that they don't really want to associate their name with negativity and i think that's a sort of commercial imperative that we can all respect They understand, actually, that readers really want to read constructive contributions to problems, and they want people to be a bit more optimistic about what to do about issues. And newspapers have stopped writing what you might call soft business features. They only tend to write about the news today, and they don't have the space and the time and the resources to write analysis, to have columns of opinion about new regulations or new things that are going on, Mm -hmm. to take a step back and contribute to a debate in a meaningful way. And a very good example of that, uh, again, slightly dry, but I think your listeners will understand that GDPR, the very big privacy regulation that came out this year, we all had our email inboxes full of consent forms. We want to continue sending you spam. Do you want to carry on receiving it? And everybody read stuff online about your inbox is full of rubbish that you don't want. Companies have had to spend millions of dollars organizing themselves for this new regulation, and and it's a real pain in the backside. It's yet another piece of regulation from Brussels that nobody needs. Amazon has had to hire hundreds of people to comply with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The tone was completely negative and made everybody think it was awful. Mm -hmm. But actually, GDPR is an amazing thing. It's the first time for 20 years that we've tried to regulate how you can value and monetize data about you and sell it to companies because it's valuable and you, and in return the companies have to demonstrate now to you what you get in return for your data if you give us this data we will give you better experiences nicer ideas to think about discounts on this that and the other we can put you in touch with other people who are going to help you specifically about the things that you want but there is a cost and the cost is this your, your privacy so you need to understand that so it's a great opportunity for companies to reframe the relationship that they have with their customers in an age when we know that that trust has completely been blown out of the water by all the scandals with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and all the rest of it. Mm. This is an opportunity for companies to re-engage. And actually tackling GDPR is not very hard. They just need a process in place. So if you think about, we have a GDPR client, which is how I happen to know quite a bit about it. And we've just written tons of articles about, first of all, if you're a business, this is how you constructively approach the issue and why it's a good thing. And we've written stories from a consumer angle, why it's a good idea and why you shouldn't turn it all away and what you can get in return for giving your data up. And none of those stories, frankly, none of those stories have appeared in any newspaper that I've looked at. It's all been negative. So it's a very good example of why constructive contribution to a debate is important. And almost all of the content we do for all of our clients tends to be constructive and optimistic uh, or at least an important contribution to something about how to approach a problem. Mm. So that's point one. And then I would say, rather than do all six, I'll I'll cut to the chase on a couple of other ones for you. Um, One you mentioned already, which is budget, is absolutely important. Newsrooms are basically cost centers. They just spend money, obviously dwindling amounts of money, but nonetheless journalists don't generally have to worry about how much money they're spending on stories. But everything that you do in a branded campaign has has a number attributed to it. And it's very important for branded content studios and native advertising studios to communicate how much money is involved in everything that they do to everybody in the chain you don't have to get into detail if you don't want to about the exact amounts that the advertiser is paying but you do need to communicate to the people who are producing the web pages to the editors to the writers and everybody else and the designers how much time has been budgeted for their work and you also have to communicate back to your clients how much time they have bought what it is that they're going to get in return for that money. And it has to be part of the entire commissioning process. It's very important. And would you like a couple more? I'll give you one more, more, two more. Um, I think that when companies are paying for journalism, they often don't understand that we have to save them from themselves. Sometimes their instincts are to say things in public, but editors and writers are much better at telling them you don't really want to say or do that it's not okay to just go off and sell this product it, at this time in this environment you need to think about how it's going to be seen by your audience those skills are the same if you were coming to an advertising advisor or a public relations advisor it'd be the same thing but branded studios and native advertising studios have to wear that advisory hat mm. just as much as just as much as those external communications consultants do as well uh, and i give an example of a client who Uh, was writing about the availability of terrorism insurance uh, in the wake of the attacks on Westminster Bridge in London uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, It's a very important thing, terrorism insurance. It keeps commerce going, and it allows people to hedge against risk so that they can carry on doing their businesses. And we wrote a piece for them. This is an insurance company. Um, But uh, the client hadn't understood that any piece of that nature needs to start with condolences to the people who lost their lives Mm. and a tribute the work of the emergency services and all these other things that anybody wouldn't actually think about doing. But if you get a little carried away, you don't want the piece to come off as, well, that's all very well, but I've got a great product for you. It's not going to be the right tone.
2: Right.
0: And just a couple of other quick ones then. So there are also obviously things that you can't talk about. So you have to make sure that your clients' wishes are respected. They normally don't want to talk about their competitors. It's sort of obvious. But there are often sometimes other things that only in conversation with them, when you deep dive, you find out that they don't really want to talk about certain things at certain times. That's important for the content. And the last thing is the most important of all really, which is about planning. There are so many people involved in content campaigns that are not involved in writing content in the editorial department of newspapers. You know, there are the people who have to sign off, the stakeholders are uh, senior executives, budget holders, advertising people, mm. marketing people and everybody has to get to the start gate at the same time, right? Which means you have to really work hard on the commissioning and planning process. We do a lot more essay plans for people. This is what the video is going to look like. These are the points it's actually going to cover off in detail. Right. This is what this piece is going to say. These are the pictures we're going to take. All that sort of stuff. Everybody has to sign it all off because they can't visualize it in the way that journalists can visualize it. It's just Journalists are just used to working very fast, and a single line on a news list can be translated in, in a journalist's head to a page in the newspaper they know what the page is going to look like but it's obviously not true for your clients who have got other jobs to do and they're skilled at a lot of other things but they can't, see, they can't see a line in the newspaper as a big story you have to explain what it's going to look like for
1: them. Right but how do you bring those two worlds together? You have journalists on one side even I mean we're talking about journalists who are okay with working for brands obviously yes. but they, it's not in their DNA to take all these concerns into consideration and then on the other hand you'll have brands who need to cut the journalists a little more slack. You know, they can't control everything in the way they would with a traditional ad, for example. No. So how do, you, how do you bring these two worlds together?
0: Um, it's a very good question. And I think that's sort of like that's the whole nub of the operation in a way. It sort of boils down to three or four things to me. But, they, but it's sort of all contained in that last point, which is planning. Mm. and who you talk to and how you get them involved. So to to make them feel comfortable with the process of what you're doing, we tend to start with new clients by doing a series of uh, what I call them speed dates. I mean, obviously, we're not trying to go on a date with people, but the the concept is the same, which is that you sit down with senior executives at your clients and you get them one at a time to talk to you about what's big in their world so that what's going on in their world, what they... What's important to them and what's keeping them awake at night and what's, what's coming down the pipe for them over the next six months is going to be adequately reflected in the story list of ideas that you send back to that client. So it creates buy-in from their executive team about the, the things that the content is going to approach. So that's one. The other thing about creating greater buy-in at clients is making sure that everybody is covered off. Everybody who's paying for it has got something for them in it. And again, that comes down to what we call that pillars of content. It's all very well writing about a new product. You've got a new wine that you're launching next month and you can only write about that wine. Everybody wants to write about the wine. Well, what about the other wines that you produce? Or what about the new vine- vineyards that you want to talk about? Or what about the fact that there's a big growth area in, for wine in South Africa? I'm assuming, obviously, if this is a wine client, but you get the idea. Mm. If you, if the, the, you know, after the, after the World Cup final in football, uh, if the World Cup final was yesterday, the sports pages would be full of the World Cup final, but the newspaper would still have a letters page and a business section uh, and a foreign news section. And you have to cover up these other areas as part of a content campaign. You can't just go all, down, all in on one thing. And then creating that buy-in again is about commissioning. And it's a really important point. You, just, you have to get everybody to the start gate at the same time. You have to get them all to agree exactly what we're doing. You have to get them to sign off and everything. And it takes a lot longer to get people engaged in what the content is going to be and what it's going to say than you're used to if you're a journalist. So you have to teach your journalists to be patient
2: Mm.
0: and to do a lot more work up front. By the way, you were talking about the ecosystem earlier. And a very important thing that I wanted to say was that a lot of this stuff comes full circle. You know, we go to our clients and try to persuade them sometimes and say, you don't need to do a native campaign with a media owner necessarily if you've got your own website and you just need the skills to produce the stuff. The media owner is a good conduit to an audience, hmm. but at the same time, you could just do it for yourself, right, that's, that's kind of a lot of our pitches like that. But actually, once you've created that camp- that content, and to your point just now, you can then take that content and use it as part of the native campaign. Of course you can. It's a good and easy way to get to the audiences of those media owners. We do that with a lot of clients. We've had a lot of video in the last year for Intesa San Paolo, which is Italy's biggest retail bank. And if you go to the Financial Times' homepage last week, you would have seen traffic drivers on the homepage driving you to those videos that we've made for Intesa. So essentially, they're having a sort of, it's a sort of part display and part native campaign with the FT on the back of videos that we made with them, but for their own sites. So it's sort of come full circle.
1: Yeah, and it, it kind of ties into the uh, the ancient uh, credo of journalism about showing it, not telling it. Oh, completely, yeah. So you, instead of going out and, and saying an ad, so we're incredibly sustainable, or working with sustainability, you actually just go out and show how you do it, how you're actually living it.
0: Absolutely, no, it's so true. And I'm sorry if sort of track, and sustainability is a little bit boring and not as sexy as fast cars or uh, amazing clothes. But but these messages are much harder to bring out. And actually they're sort of tailor-made for content in a way, aren't they? I think that, you know, you can have great travel content and luxury goods content but actually a lot of that stuff is still very, very good for old school display. It's actually your point. Show a lovely picture and you don't need a lot of words. Right. But on issues like sustainability you absolutely have to tell a story.
1: But, but I think it kind of touches on one of the the hardest part, you know, when you talk to brands or you talk to studios doing this, is about coming up with, with stories, right? So we do different kinds of research, both in the, uh, on native advertising in the news media industry and in the magazine industry. And one of the hardest parts for publishers are getting or convincing brands to tell real stories, but also to find engaging stories with the brands. And so this is like sustainability is a good example of something that you know what there are a lot of good stories the same could go for a the annual report of a company you know there's a lot of numbers yes. in there but at the same time for a journalist there is a lot of stories in there
0: yes they don't know it though do they they're sitting on all these stories and they don't know how good they are because they they're not they're not trained to think about that
1: Let, let's talk about how you sit down with a brand and then try to find stories in their organization. Because obviously, if you do a native advertising campaign, sometimes it will have a specific goal, like a business goal. So we want to drive traffic to this or raise brand awareness around this. But on other times, you know, it's not, it's not a given what kind of story should be told. So how do you sit down and dig out those good stories with brands?
0: Um, it's bringing, again, it's bringing the mentality of the newsroom to to bear on what it is that they have and trying to get them to think outside of the things they normally think about. A lot of people in companies say nothing ever happens around here. Unless you've got a brand new product to launch or you just hired a new CEO or you've just had a merger with your competitor or something, uh, they just think, oh, nothing ever goes on around here. How could you possibly find any stories in here? Right. But the truth is, you know, you could always find hundreds of stories you just need to be quite rigorous about how the questions that you ask yourself and i'm very interested by the way that you said that it's a perennially hard problem because i felt when i talked about it in berlin i was a bit worried that people might think i was slightly patronizing them about how to find stories but actually there were other speakers who were doing the same thing so i assumed that it wasn't just my (laughs) issue as well
1: no, I think it's a um, a challenge both for people, even though the ones that are used to finding stories, they even mm-hmm. though they have all their uh, you know content creation and skills and the ability to find good stories. when they sit down with a the brand they, they kind of tend to freeze up because they're so focused on what the brand might want them to come up with instead of just saying okay so let's let's take a look at you let's dig out some of the good stories
0: yeah exactly so i touched on that the first thing you should do the first thing you should definitely think about is what i was talking about earlier which are these speed dates so you need to sit down with the executives of these companies and say i know that you have a list and it's got you know five things on it because you know that you've got this new product coming up or you know that you've Mm -hmm. got this big event that you're sponsoring so those are fine those might be stories although it won't be a story if you just say, we sponsored an event. You need to actually find an angle. But there's going to be something in there. But in the meantime, I want to hear from your executives about what's coming up in their world. It's not up to them to tell me stories. That's my job. But I just want to hear from them about what they're working on. Mm. You know, I'm used to, when I was a reporter, I used to have to go and talk to all sorts of business people about what was going on. And I, I used to sit there and think, God, I've got to write something. I, if I come back to the newspaper and I'd go up to the editor and I'd say, I I don't know, it was really boring, I haven't got anything to say, i get fired. So I had to think of what was interesting. So journalists are really good at listening to little angles that they can hear in what people are talking about and teasing out ideas. But you have to hear what they're up to first and what they stand for. And let them talk about themselves, not just what their work is. Let them talk about where they came from, what they were doing. Quite often stories are about the backgrounds of people and companies. Mm. You know, we just did a piece for a new financial client of ours and one of the founders was a policeman in Sydney. Okay. And then he did something else like the Olympic movement in Sydney. And then by the by, he ends up being a banker in London in the entertainment world and so on. So he's got a fantastic story to tell all on his own.
2: Mm.
0: You know, what I learned in the Sydney police force about banking, you know, you wouldn't think that, would actually, I mean, can we make that work? I don't <laughs> you know think mean? there's a story. There's going to be a story in there. what the police force told me about investment i don't know so you know let people talk about their backgrounds as well Mm. as the jobs that they do and then that way you can build up number one thing on the story list is your list what's going on what are you talking about where are you going build that story list up and the second thing to do is to think about using external listeners as storytellers like us but other people as well and also i think i we really encourage our clients to explore lots of other people within their business stories that a company has to tell or the conversations that they want to curate about the world that they're in which is the real broader purpose of content mm-hmm. rather than just selling something do not exist by and large in the marketing department or in the c-suite where all the senior executives are it is this out there in that company so we have companies who regularly send out three or four very short questions to their international divisions or other people out in the field or whatever it is, what's going on? What are you doing? What's, what's happening in the next six months? What are you up to? And you can collate those answers, and there will be story ideas in there. So that's an important other thing to do. And the other thing is to make sure that you are looking at what your competitors are writing about mm. and not to be worried about stealing great ideas because you don't have to invent them all for yourself. If this company has written some great stuff about this. By the time you've done it, it will, it will be different anyway, because you'll be bringing a different perspective to it mm. and you'll have your own attitude to it. And in any case, you've got a different audience. So it's OK to take other people's best practice and their ideas as well. So there's going to be story ideas, too. Uh, you should be thinking what, about what's happening in your world. What are your suppliers talking about? What are your employers and employees and audiences talking about uh, your customers? What are their concerns? What issues are happening in your world? Any new regulations? where so we talked about GDPR as a kind of obvious one. But there are all sorts of other regulations going on. There are all sorts of other political movements going on. Mm. How does that impact on the content campaign that you're doing? The last one I mentioned earlier, which is I've put sort of two together, really, which is people are surprised to learn often that the features meeting at a newspaper, one of the most important people at the features meeting, which is deciding what features we're going to write tomorrow, is the letters editor is almost always in the room, he or she. And that's because it's very, very important that what the readers of the newspaper are writing to the newspaper about Mm. is reflected in what the newspaper writes about the next day. And the same goes for a content campaign. What are your customers saying to you about the content that you're doing? And do they want more of stuff? And of course, crucially in the digital world, what are they clicking on? You can measure everything. So what stuff has had the most effective hit? Yeah. Which thing was tweeted the most or retweeted the most? Which thing on LinkedIn got the most likes? And if you're getting a lot of that then do it again. Do more. Mm. And if you're doing something that got no hits last time around, why?
1: Stop doing do it. Do something
0: else. Yeah, <laughs> Stop doing it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, But couldn't you even, um, you know, expand that to adding customer service in the room or, you know, salespeople? Oh, completely.
0: I said the salespeople would be covered off in a way by, you know, make sure you ask them. So you should sort of ask everybody, right? Mm. And so you can either have them in the room or you can just regularly email them and ask them what's going on. But totally, you must ask them, what are their concerns? So very good example. We did a very big report for a very, very large U.S. asset manager this year. And we've done it also. We've done this for three or four years now. And they survey a lot of their clients about their investment concerns for the next year. And this time around... They were very keen that they also involved their salespeople in the process of what the report was going to say or what it would what it would address. Mm. And the reason for that was because they asked their salespeople specifically, "What are your clients worried about?" So don't just leave it to us to ask them. Why don't you tell us first what you really would like to see? This report, which is a piece of content marketing, mm. is going to go to if you were to go to market with this and put it in front of them in order to demonstrate your credentials for understanding what's big in their world or what what's keeping them up at night, what should be in here? And the salespeople absolutely contributed a load of ideas for the sorts of questions that we should talk about, which went beyond the things that we had been talking about for the previous two years, mm. two or three years. So extremely important to get that to do that. So that's a very good idea. Mm. And the point is, it's all measurable, right? In the digital world.
1: Yeah, that's good. And potentially bad, of course, if if they don't respond to it. But uh, but at least you learn something. Yeah. Another thing that we'd like to learn is what's going on at First Word, uh, let's say, in the next uh, couple of months. What are we going to see from you guys?
0: Uh, gosh, well, you know, so much of it is confidential. <laughs> when it comes out, um, half the time we're not allowed to talk about it, I must say. But um, we've just been commissioned to write a speech for a big governance conference to do with sustainability, obviously mm-hmm. um, enough. Climate change is a big thing with us. We've been doing a lot of stuff on climate change, and uh, we've got a new client who's asked us to write about stuff, which is a, an angle on climate change I haven't seen recently, which is, sadly, that a lot of it is already happening and it's too late, so in which case, why don't we actually start to think about what adaptations the, the planet needs to address the fact that it's already gonna be heated up? Mm. there's all about adaptation and adaptability, we're doing some speeches on that. Uh, we've done some beautiful stuff on uh, some Swiss watches lately <laughs> 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 and how they're coming up. But um, the most important thing for us, as I suppose our best way to answer that question, is that we are talking to all sorts of people in expanding our continental European presence lately. And one of the reasons for that is because we, we don't just write the stuff. We do a lot of stuff where we give them what I call sort of Anglo-Saxon business journalism for their English. Output. So a lot of international companies, obviously unfortunately for them, the language of the internet is English, which is obviously our advantage and their disadvantage. And right. and however good their English is, and however well it's spell-checked and the grammar is okay, it isn't what an English-speaking audience will expect to read, as you understand well. Um, and so in many, many cases, we just end up basically rewriting completely from top to bottom stuff that was generated in a foreign language to start with. Uh, and we might translate it for them, we might write it from scratch. And we found that, uh, obviously, given that it's all sort of XFT-type people, they're very, obviously, and rightly so, trusting of the work that we do, and they just sort of, could you redo our entire corporate website, please? So We've been doing quite a bit of that. And -hmm. at the same time, generating content ideas for them as well. So we've had a, quite a lot of work in that in that area.
1: So make sure that you uh, put together a blog post for our blog once you have some of that stuff out there that we can actually see. Absolutely, I will. Adrian, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to be on this podcast. There's been a lot of good insights on how to come up with good stories, how to make the collaboration with uh, the brands and the uh, journalists uh, work. So I'm sure the listeners are going to be thrilled once this comes out. Thank you so much for being here.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for your time. And and have a terrific Christmas and New Year.
1: Thank you. You too. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. And for our listeners, if you like what you've heard, please drop us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe. We're also available on Pocket Cast and Stitcher, where you can find all the episodes of this season. But whatever platform you prefer for listening, remember that you can also be notified each time we launch a new episode by signing up to our podcast newsletter at nativeadvertisinginstitute.com slash podcast. That's all for now, folks. See you in February 2019 when we're back with the second season of the Native Advertising Powerhouse podcast.
0: That's it, you guys. Remember to subscribe to the Native
2: Advertising Powerhouse podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.